it gives me really immense pleasure to welcome all of you to the first annual, uh, to the inaugural event in the first annual speaker series in ancient and medieval studies here at MIT. Um, before I introduce tonight's speaker, uh, Jeffrey Hamburger, uh, there are a number of people and entities from across the institute uh, that I'm happy to have the opportunity to thank publicly. Uh, first and foremost of these is uh, Deborah Fitzgerald, the Dean of the School of Humanities, Arts, and Social Sciences, uh, who, whose support, both financial and moral, <laughs> um, has been absolutely essential uh, to this series. Uh, we have a really exciting lineup this year uh, in which the full breadth uh, of ancient and medieval studies uh, is represented, chronological, geographical, disciplinary. Art history, manuscript studies, philosophy, musicology, economic history, literary criticism, uh, from 5th century Athens to 15th century Flanders. Uh, and those are just our first four speakers. So, uh, so if you'd like to hear about upcoming AMS events, um, these talks are going to be taking place about once a month uh, throughout the academic year. Um, and with rare exceptions, they will not conflict uh, with the CMS Colloquium series. Uh, please let me know after tonight's talk and I'll add you to our email list. In addition to the support of Dean Fitzgerald, my colleagues in literature uh, have been immensely helpful uh, really ever since I arrived here at MIT, uh, but with particular intensity and solicitude since Sunday uh, when it became clear that I was going to be among the walking wounded for a while. The program in History, Theory, and Criticism in the School of Architecture uh, is co-sponsoring this evening's talk as well. So it's across school as well as across a disciplinary event. And I'd like to thank uh, Mark Jarzombek in architecture for his support. Um, I'd also like to thank the program in comparative media studies, uh, which has generously provided both uh, the refreshments to come and the beautiful venue of the moment, um, and which also contributed to publicity. Their head, Jim Parody, uh, and their communications director, Andrew Whitaker, uh, have been especially helpful. Finally, a little dance, I'd like to thank uh, Jeff Ravel from the History Department, whose idea it was for our multiple programs to collaborate in this way. I think this evening will illustrate just some of the many avenues for dialogue between AMS and CMS, and I hope it will be the beginning of a broader set of collaborative ventures uh, between these two MSs. MS, of course, is also the abbreviation for manuscript, uh, which leads me to our speaker this evening, uh, art historian and manuscript scholar Jeffrey Hamburger. It's a testimony to the breadth of his appeal uh, that his visit has inspired such a formidable litany of people, programs, and entities uh, to join forces in welcoming him here to MIT. Since 2008, he has been the Kuno Franke Professor of German Art and Culture at Harvard University. He's taught at the University of Toronto and Oberlin College and has held visiting professorships uh, at all across Europe and North America. His research has been supported by the Guggenheim Foundation, the American Philosophical Society, the Institute for Advanced Study, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Alexander von Humboldt uh, Stiftung. He's also been elected member of the, Academy of Art, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the American Philosophical Society. 
So as these accolades would suggest, his scholarly production has been truly remarkable, um, and his CV is in fact longer than my proverbial arm, which is, yes, a shameless appeal for sympathy. What impresses me even more about Jeffrey's scholarly career, however, is first the enthusiastic spirit um, of collaboration that has informed it, and related to that, his commitment to reaching as wide as possible an audience um, through a broad range of media. He's collaborated, for example, not just with fellow art historians, but also with Benjamin Bagby of Sequencia, one of the most innovative medieval music ensembles um, active over the past couple of decades. Jeffrey's writing includes not just foundational scholarly monographs like uh, the Rothschild Canticles, Art and Mysticism in Flanders and the Rhineland, uh, circa 1300, and St. John the Divine, the deified evangelist in medieval art and theology, but also a wide array of co-edited collections of essays and strategic interventions in popular outlets. I'm thinking here of a co-authored essay in the New York Review of Books um, on the Varberg Institute at the University of London. He is, in short, a true public intellectual and an invaluable ambassador for the study of manuscript culture, pre-modern media, and the Middle Ages more broadly. We are extremely lucky to have him. His talk is entitled Script as Image. Please join me in welcoming Jeffrey Hamburger. Thanks very much. Thanks very, very much. That was probably the best part of the afternoon. <laughs> I should probably stop there. Uh, I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, I've always thought that there should be more collaboration amongst uh, universities in the Boston area. Uh, we can be so close and yet so far, and so I hope that this is one milestone or stepping stone in closer ties between our institutions, and in particular between medieval studies at uh, our two institutions. In a, a famous book, Visible Words, published in 1969, uh, John Sparrow could still assert, and I'm quoting him, that the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages have little to show in the way of inscriptions in which either the text or its presentation can claim to be a work of art." Unquote. This astonishing generalization itself now seems little more than a relic of a benighted period of scholarship. Paleographers have long since ceased to regard the study of the history of handwriting as a Hilfswissenschaft, witnessed the ambitious title of an influential journal launched in 1977, Scritura e Civiltà. As one of the most important, persistent, and pervasive technologies in the history of humankind, a technology, moreover, that made the keeping of that history possible in the first place, writing in relation to literacy, linguistics, cognition, and media studies has a central place across and beyond the humanistic disciplines. It is time, in turn, for historians of medieval art to take a broader view of paleography rather than view it primarily as a means of dating or localizing monuments or, at its most literal level, deciphering illustrated texts or epigraphic inscriptions. Scripts can serve as talismans, tokens, amulets, and apotropaic devices. Even stripped of such associations, a well-written hand, as in this magnificent 10th century Boethius from St. Augustine's in Canterbury, 
can impress by virtue of its calligraphic control, eloquence, and expression. One does not necessarily have to be able to read a script in order to respond to it as a highly differentiated and expressive set of marks that provides one of the most immediate, recognizable physical traces of human presence, thought, and activity. Within the realm of visual imagery, the written word can rise to a form of representation in its own right, prior to and independent of the complex phenomenon generally considered under the rubric of text and image, a generalization as true of modern art as it is of the Middle Ages. In contrast to modernity, however, through much of the Middle Ages, as in antiquity, the primary status of the spoken word and oral delivery ensured that writing, no less than picturing, was subject to suspicion as a form of representation. On the parchment page, the elaborately inscribed and decorated written word could also be seen as a form of imagery. In light of the impact of semiotics, this talk, where it focused on images, could easily have been called image as script. Although in recent years, the, re the urge to read images increasingly has given way to anthropological approaches that emphasize their power at the expense of the written word, or at least the realization that seeing while reading is at least as important as reading what one sees. The self-styled iconic turn often looks to the Middle Ages and antiquity for antecedents for what it sees as a return to and reclamation of effects of pictorial presence. This lecture does not exclude from its purview text-image relationships or the figural aspects of script, for example, the historiated initial, but its focus is on what I choose to call the iconicity of script, which includes its instrumental and expressive aspects as a visual medium in the Middle Ages. These extend beyond signification, let alone symbolism, to the presence and persuasiveness of lettering, at times independent of its meaning, hardly an, inconsiderate, uh, an insignificant consideration in light of an audience that, at least in the case of public monuments, was often largely illiterate. Linguists distinguish glyphic or figurative scripts from phonetic forms of writing. Whether in the form of historiated initials or simpler scribal elaborations, medieval systems of script, however, elude such easy categorization. The simplest pen flourishing extending from a serif can burst into bloom or generate complex figurations that alter the perception of a text, and marginalia, often described as doodles or a realm of relative artistic freedom, can often serve as a frame or gloss. Scripts can evoke or involve forms and modes of representation and authority without directly engaging in figural representation per se. The graphic symbols employed in medieval documents, which vary enormously, are only the most obvious example. They can also invoke certain modes of performance, in particular the immediacy of oral recitation and with it physical human presence, without necessarily having been intended for reading out loud. In short, script, far from a medium with fixed prescribed boundaries, is a flexible instrument in which various categories of human experience and expression, the audible, the visible, the symbolic, and the figurative, all come together. This afternoon, I can explore only a few aspects of this complex set of topics. There is no better place to begin than with the origins of Christianity itself and the transformation of writing that accompanied it. 
Like Judaism and Islam, Christianity is a religion of the word, a phrase that, no matter how problematic, invests writing itself with divinity and identifies it as scripture. Nowhere is this association more emphatically spelled out than at the beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Here, in the late 12th century Arnstein Bible, uh, it's from a monastery just north of modern-day Frankfurt, the Christ Pantocrator, the only figure who protrudes beyond the frame, places a golden book above John's head to emphasize that he, the Logos, is the source from which the image, a complex imbrication of word and image, ultimately springs. We see here how the doctrine of Christ's incarnation placed a newfound emphasis on the visible as a vehicle of revelation. Albertus Magnus underscores this link when, in his commentary on the opening of John, he paraphrases chapter 1, verse 10, by stating simply, he was in the world, that is, he was made visible in the world. Today, when we think of the word being made visible, various media and technologies come to mind. Printing, perhaps, although increasingly fewer people rely on printed media for access to information imparted by the word. Advertising in all of its forms, including the billboard, the computer screen, and the jumbotron. To capture some of the sense of the medieval experience of the word made flesh, however, one has only to look at the cover of a medieval collection of gospel readings for the Mass, for example, the Mass lectionary from the Imperial Cathedral in Speyer, to be confronted with word as overwhelming presence, palpable, physical. The cover is four centimeters thick, as prominent as the central figure on the tympanum of a Gothic portal, yet as ethereal and refined as the thin layer of glistening gold leaf with which it is covered. In the words of Rupert of Deutz, codices of the Gospels are not inappropriately covered with gold, silver, and precious stones. The gold reflects heavenly wisdom, the silver glitters with the eloquence of faith, and the gemstones shine with the miracles worked by the hands of Christ." To what extent the Codex itself represents a specifically Christian invention, or to what degree Christianity simply ensured its success, are questions that cannot be considered here. The Codex, however, marks more than just a change in technology narrowly defined. A profound change in medium, it entailed a transformation of form and content, in short, a novel system of communication that placed newfound emphasis on the visualization of the spoken word in ways that opened it up to prolonged, concentrated meditation, as well as deep aesthetic delectation in ways that were closely interconnected. The manifestations of such a shift are well known, as we see here in an early Galatian sacramentary, now in the Vatican. They include the spacing of the words, the introduction of punctuation, new and more emphatic forms of decoration, and the increasing hierarchization of scripts, which in turn encouraged and enabled a systematic reordering of the content of the codex. The transformation of letters into representational forms of infinite variety, in and of themselves an expression of cosmic order, complication, and creativity, not only articulated the process of reading, it also drew the reader deep into the body of the text. Such forms simultaneously serve to draw the text deeper into the body of the reader, and not only as a matter of memory. You know, think of the uh, images of John eating 
the book presented to him by the angel. The page becomes a space where all the senses, sight, touch, hearing, but also at least by implication, taste and smell as well, come into play. Uh, and here is an image from a French manuscript known as the Legilogue, which shows this equation between uh, body and book. Scripture itself, amplified by exegesis, identified Christ with the Logos, an association reinforced by a subset of images that literally place the infant Christ or his crucified corpus within the pages of an open book. Not by accident do we identify an author's body of work with his corpus, a relatively modern usage but anticipated in medieval images such as this one. Here, the famous Angers apocalypse with John eating the book. Body and book stand in a reciprocal relationship to one another. According to the practices of monastic lectio, a book was something to be ingested, digested, and ruminated upon. The figures that occupy and constitute historiated initials, as here in the St. Albans Psalter, often gesture to both the text and the reader, participating performatively in the process of vocalization of the words that they articulate. Books themselves could be construed as having a speaking voice. Embodied habits of reading in which oral recitation went hand in hand with rhetorical gesticulation gradually gave way to textualized practices of interpretation, a phenomenon that Ivan Illich linked to the emergence of what he called the bookish text in the 12th century, in which, and I'm quoting him, exegesis and hermeneutics became operations on the text rather than on the world. Monastic authors may have written on parchment, but their ultimate goal was to imprint their words on the hearts of their readers. In the words of Eric Yeager, the book of the heart is a quintessentially medieval trope in that it combines the central symbol of medieval textual culture, the manuscript codex, with a psychology and anthropology that were centered on the heart rather than the head. Stephen Yeager has spoken of a recurring shift from the charismatic body to the charismatic text that increases the allure of the artifact at the expense of the charisma of personal presence. With the transition to a textualized culture, works of art appropriate the representing force that had resided in bodies. The aura of the gods fades. The aura of the work of art intensifies. Peter Brown similarly describes a shift in sentiment in the late 6th century in which, and I'm quoting him, Lectio and Pictura came to be placed on a more equal footing. Far from subjecting images to the discipline of reading conceived as a process of rational reflection, the shift, as delineated by Brown, entailed the endowing of the written word with what he calls an iconic charge, an invitation to vision. In a day and age in which the screen has largely replaced the book and texts and images are transmitted and transformed in virtual space, we do well to remind ourselves that manuscripts, literally books written by hand, necessarily involved and evoked the bodies of those that produced them. That they were written on animal skins made their physical associations that much more immediate. Christian exegetes readily picked up on these associations by allegorizing all aspects of the production process, from the making of parchment, which was associated with the incarnation, to the use of different colored inks, which in texts such as the Charter of Christ on your right could be associated with the blood of Christ's wounds. 
Christ's characterization as the word made flesh established a fundamental link between the figural and the symbolic that pervaded the production and reception of medieval handwriting, especially in the ritualized production of books intended for use in the liturgy. The Greek term character, as in our modern word character, in addition to modern meanings that range from a single letter to a person's distinctive personality traits, also came to signify the imago dei with which God had stamped or impressed human nature. Written letters connoted far more than simply calligraphy or ornament, which are the terms to which the Victorian age tended to reduce them and from which we, in turn, still struggle to free them. In the desire to interpret, one cannot, of course, ignore the practical dimensions of manuscript production. In fact, it could be argued that the visual means by which what could, in analogy to the much-provoked power of the image, be called the power of script, tended to diminish over the course of the Middle Ages as the identity of author, scribe, artist, and reader became more diffuse and differentiated. Aura gave way to artistry. It is not by accident that most, if not all, of the examples I will show you are drawn from monastic manuscripts of the early and high Middle Ages. Concurrent with the rise of professional craftsmen and increasingly collaborative systems of production, according to which not only text and image, but even rubrics, line endings, and fleurinet ornament could all be consigned to specialists, the concentration or attribution of meaning in or to single categories of ornament became progressively more difficult and diffuse. Just as in Gothic illumination, text and image are more easily distinguished than in earlier manuscripts, so too with the shift in production from monasteries to lay craftsmen in the course of the 12th century, scribes and artists increasingly tended to work separately and quite often without even con directly consulting with one another. In light of these changing patterns of collaboration, one has to be very careful when considering questions of agency, intention, and the production of meaning. With the rise of books whose primary function was to convey information rather than to impart significance, script lost in what might be called numinous presence. Like John, however, we should begin in Principio. One of the most venerable visual manifestations of the word in Christian scribal practice is that of nomina sacra. Familiar from the late Middle Ages in the form of the IAHS monogram that proliferated not only in manuscripts but also in prints and paintings, the practice derives in part from the abbreviation of divine names and epithets in Greek. In functional terms, the best precedent, however, is provided by the Hebrew tetragrammaton, although whether there is a direct connection with Christian practice remains uncertain. The primary purpose of nomina sacra, at least by the late third century, was hardly to save space, but rather to express religious reverence, to set apart these words visually in the way in which they are written. When iconoclastic tendencies had to be reckoned with, the impulse to lend letters more elaborative figurative forms may also have been driven in part by prescriptions, or at least reservations regarding other more immediate forms of representation. In the history of illumination, the most celebrated examples are the great Cairo initials in the Lindisfarne Gospels and the Book of Kells on your right. On your left, you see a page from the De Laudibus Crucis of Rabanus Maros, in which the monogram is made up of letters inscribed over a continuous Latin text, in which each visual unit also makes sense in itself. 
can think of it as the world's most complicated crossword puzzle. The earliest examples, however, are virtually as venerable as Christianity itself. As noted by Larry Hurtado, he's a papyrologist, these scribal symbols are perhaps the earliest surviving artifacts of, a, of an emerging Christian material culture. In the Latin tradition, and already in some early Greek manuscripts, the nomina sacra, which occur from at least the second century, and whose origins probably lie in the first, are closely related to staurograms, that is, monograms that take on the form of the cross. And some monograms, in turn, are closely related to the system of gematria. Uh, it's a system of discovering hidden meanings behind words using numerical values for letters of the alphabet. All of these techniques were combined in visual rebuses designed to express reverence for the name of Jesus, a name that was thought to have the power to save and to heal. Inscriptions on altars make this clear. A round altar table from Besançon, formerly considered uh, a piece of early Christian spolia, but more likely a Romanesque revival of the late 11th or early 12th century, combines the Cairo monogram with the Alpha and Omega in the form of a staurogram with the dove at its top and an Agnus Dei at its base. The overlapping set of symbols is set at the center of a scalloped disc reminiscent of ancient triclinia tables to evoke the Last Supper that was reenacted each time Mass was performed. The declarative inscription placed around the perimeter reinforces the performative association of visual and ritual signs. Applied prominently, if not always legibly, large Greek and Latin letters lend ordinary objects and actions extraordinary significance. An obvious example is the practice of inscribing chiastic Greek and Roman alphabets on the floor of a newly dedicated church as prescribed and recorded in pontificals. You see an example here. An act echoed in numerous other benedictions that had apotropaic as well as ceremonial significance. In such rites, the letters act independently of their meaning. Wielded as ritual instruments, they are designed to conjure up and control divine presence. The difficulty inherent in deciphering monograms is a constituent part of their meaning, adding an element of mystery. In a theological miscellany from the Abbey of Saint-Trinité at Fécamp, dated around 1035 to 66, a medallion-shaped monogram combines the alpha and omega with the number 800, the chi rho, and I see at the center of a wheel whose spokes are inscribed IHC, ISTE, ISTE, INITIUM, PRINCIPIUM, XRC, CHRISTUS, VITE, and FINIS. It's a way of packing as much meaning into a dense space as possible. Still more striking is the monogram at the front of a mid-11th century copy of Cassian's Collaciones from the Monastery of Saint Amand, in which a constellation of Greek and Latin letters forms the focal point of the entire image. As we learn from the framing inscription, it represents, or purports to represent, the tomb of the saint, topped by an altar, which appears as a secondary element tucked into the lower left-hand corner. The gigantic monogram commemorates not the saint, but rather the sacristan, kustos, the Greek letters above and below the central O, loter, the Latin letters on the vertical and horizontal axes extending from the O, 
who in 809 rescued the relics from rising floodwaters. And on the recto, the facing page, Cassian, the altar, transmits his work to the monastery's patron saint via the monks of the community. Remaining in the realm of ritual, we can turn to the monograms that mark two signal moments in the performance of the Mass, the preface and the canon. Beginning in the Carolingian period, both became focal points of decorative elaboration that exploited the allied traditions of monogram and figurative initial. An early 13th century sacramentary from Avignon displays the two modes of representation side by side. On the verso, the very dignum monogram culminates in a cross embedded in fine early Gothic red and blue filigree. On the facing recto, the T of the crucifixion, which in its strong compartmentalization is far more Romanesque in character, lends figurative embodiment to the mystery of the mass, a process enhanced by the way in which the bleeding corpus projects over the frame of the miniature. In this context, it is essential to emphasize the instrumental character of the words of the canon, which affect the transformation, however understood, of the elements on the altar into the body and blood of Christ. The Te Igitur in a 12th century missal from Savigny represents the height of elaboration. Christ in majesty, surrounded by the tetramorph and supported by an angel, occupies the intersection of the cross formed by the letter T. The entire composition reproduces in miniature a monumental composition of a kind often placed in the conch of the apse, immediately above an altar such as the one on which this very book would have been employed. The echo is not merely accidental. It anchors the book in a ritual context that informs its meaning. Letters did not need to be figurated in order to take on bodily presence. By the same token, representations of the body did, need, did not need to constitute letters, per se, in order to suggest bodily forms. A puzzle initial opening compline for Friday in a Dutch Burgatine breviary from Marienwater, the manuscript formerly belonged to William Morris, lends meaning to the words by making the opening R into a matrix that supports not the narrative depiction of the commemorated event, but rather schematic signs reminiscent of contemporary devotional prints in the form of the five wounds of Christ. Still more reductive, yet more dramatic, is an opening from an English devotional miscellany from the 1480s, originally written for a woman in Kent, in which several openings replace lines of letters with neatly arranged rows of bleeding wounds that are inevitably reminiscent of script. The ruddy color of this English miscellany reflects the use of purple parchment, whether dyed or painted, in imperial and princely commissions, in which color and materials alone could carry significance. The English miscellany is not an imperial production. The emperor in question is Christ. Similar connotations carry over to those portable altars in which the red color of the slab refers to the blood of the Eucharistic offering on the stone of sacrifice. A Carolingian gospel book from Reims combines chrysography, writing in gold, and areography, writing in silver, to infuse the word of God with dignity and mystery in ways that suggest something of what cannot be represented, namely the invisible word. Chrysography of this kind, conceived of as a kind of immaterial writing in light, is based on precedence in late antique manuscript illumination. 
Medieval observers, however, would only have brought would um, have only had to bring to mind the inscriptions of the Arch of Constantine, which stood in close juxtaposition to porphyry backgrounds, of which only fragments survive. As I'm sure many of you know, this monument is usually reproduced in black and white, but in order to really appreciate uh, its effects, one has to see it in uh, color. A single surviving gilt bronze capital from the Carolingian monastery of Corvey, set not into porphyry but rather into local purple sandstone, provides a monumental imitation of Roman precedent. In his questions on the Gospels, Augustine declares, the eloquence of God is silver. More than idle allegorization, such statements respond to criticisms of scribal practices that critics such as Jerome considered uh, distractions. Describable practices that critics such as Jerome considered distractions, excuse me. Light brings these codices, which were thought to embody life, alive, an effect most evident when one takes such books in one's hands, and all too often entirely lost even in the finest uh, facsimiles. Still more remote from modern experience is the glitter and dazzle of burnished metal in the light of flickering candles. Here, Bernard of Hildesheim standing at the altar as depicted in his Gospels. And I've deliberately picked this not terribly good reproduction precisely because it does give you some sense of the play of light over the gold, which is usually entirely lost when a uh, photographer uses balanced light uh, basically wiping out all of these evanescent uh, effects. In the Christmas section of a richly illustrated early 14th century Westphalian collection of homilies for Christmas and Easter, passages that characterize the birth and resurrection of Christ in terms of the light shining in the darkness are systematically highlighted in thickly burnished gold. Gospel books regularly reserve the use of display scripts for the opening of each of the four Gospels. The terminology used to describe such scripts is notoriously imprecise. There is no substitute for seeing. Words seeking to describe images cannot replace images, even when those images are of words. When it comes to display scripts, although precedents can be found in pre-Carolingian manuscripts, most notably insular Gospel books, it was the Carolingian court school that established a binding precedent for the remainder of the Middle Ages, especially when it came to the evocation and evolution of scripts of classical origin. Chrysography must be counted among the techniques that can be traced to the ancient world. By no means unique to Christianity, it can, for example, be found in some Egyptian papyri. In Christian codices, however, chrysography acquired particular associations. In the City of God, which Augustine composed prior to the earliest extant codices written in gold, the church father remarked that so sublime are the opening words of John that they should be prominently displayed in golden letters. Almost a millennium later, Meister Eckhart, writing in an age in which the use of chrysography had become rare, at least in relation to the far greater number of books produced overall, quoted the same passage in the prologue to his commentary on John. Uh, here's an apocalypse from the late Middle Ages. Uh, it's from Bamberg, and it's a relatively modest manuscript, but uh, it is the book of Revelation. It was written by some nuns in the convent of nominally poor Clares in Bamberg, and as you can see, it's written entirely 
uh, in gold. Examples of chrysography more or less contemporary with Eckhart include the mid-13th century Golden Gospels of Mainz on your left and the Gospels dated 1368, written entirely in gold by Johann von Trappau for Albrecht III of Austria. It's on your right. And both of these books are examples in various ways of what might be called an early Christian revival in the late Middle Ages. Pierre Salat's Petit Livre d'Amour, written in Paris and Lyon around 1500, in mirror writing, the slide is not backwards, offers a rare instance of purple parchment and chrysography having been employed for a secular text. Really quite exceptional. The glamour of writing in gold should not, however, detract from the complex use of other colors in display scripts. The topic has received short shrift, if only because a thorough analysis requires extensive reproduction in color. The use of color for honor, emphasis, and not least expression carries over into current usage, for example, in the phrase, a red letter day, used to signal a date of particular importance. No less significant than the colors of the letters themselves, however, are the colors and patterning of the backgrounds. The practice persists in modernity. Alongside another work by Jasper Johns, I show you Paul Clay's watercolor entitled Einst im Grau der Nacht entaucht, once emerged from the gray of night, painted in 1918, in which he embeds the poem in a scintillating diaphanous mosaic of colored squares. There is, incidentally, a great clay exhibition at Boston College right now. It's really worth going to see. Um, Celebrated for his attention to the interaction of text and image, Clay worked to break down the boundaries between the two media. Similar effects, similar effects can be found in medieval manuscripts, some of which would have been known to Clay. This is the Codex Aureus. Uh, and in this context, I might just mention in passing, I don't have an image of it here, but uh, Clay's contemporary, Carl Jung, took an interest in illuminated manuscripts, and that's obvious to anyone who has so much as glanced at his now-published Red Book. I don't know if any of you have seen the facsimile of Jung's Red Book, but it essentially looks like a great big Romanesque lectern Bible with huge historiated uh, initials. To look at the pericope for Christmas in a late 10th century mass lectionary, most likely written at Reichenau or Schaffhausen, is to realize that background is a misnomer insofar as the term implies the illusion of a spatial continuum in which letters occupy the foreground. Whereas on the verso, the gold capitals announcing the feast lie on the surface of a purple pattern imitating precious silk, perhaps a conscious play on the close etymological kinship between the two meanings of textus, text and textile. On the facing recto, the letters are in danger of disappearing behind a trellis of diagonally laid silver bars, over which the vine ornament on the frame proliferates in a series of luxurious growths. The letters are not ornament, nor are they ornamented. They form part of the larger fabric of decoration. Embellishment and enhancement constitute part of their meaning. In contrast to modern maps in which color serves to distinguish one region or country from its neighbors, in medieval manuscripts, color complicates and mystifies an aesthetic first elaborated in insular manuscripts in which the oscillating effects created by superimposed blocks of color make the labyrinthine interlace still more difficult to trace. 
A similar grammar of ornament continues to govern the overall scheme in manuscripts such as the Bible from Achin, dated to the late 12th century, in which much of the vocabulary, whether the narrative scenes or the scrolling vines that enmesh the letters. Display script, even if not lavished on an entire manuscript, could be applied selectively as a means of highlighting loci of particular significance, often if not exclusively at the beginning of books. In Psalters, the Beatus initial opening the first psalm was a customary site of pictorial elaboration. An early 13th century Old Testament with a gloss Psalter from the monastery of Marchien provides not one but two examples. In the larger of the two, which opens the Psalter text proper as opposed to the commentary, the vine scrolls forming the two bows of the letter B are inhabited by a host of attendants, below various encapsulated episodes from the life of David, above, more strikingly, the scribes whose activity in copying the Psalter is likened to David's vocal performance. More than mere illustration, an image such as this links writing, reading, and chant in the performance of its own readers. Another familiar focal point in the pictorial elaboration of the biblical text was the Liber Generationis at the beginning of the Gospel of St. Matthew. Here you see a Mosin example from Stavlo, written in the first third of the 12th century. Uh, here's another example uh, from Angers, also from the first half of the 12th century. And in a late 12th century gospel book made for the wealthy abbey of Notre Dame au Nonain in Troyes, an enormous letter L embedded in vine scrolls supports three visual fields. In addition to the author portrait of the evangelist, a precocious image of the throne of mercy, and not least the opening words of Matthew's gospel themselves, written in gold on alternating lines of blue and gold. In effect, the design crams onto one page all the elements in kippet and author portrait that normally were spread across an entire opening. In an 11th century gospel book, also in Reims, but originally from southern France, most likely Arles, great golden capitals spell out the genealogy of Christ against a variegated background of green and blue bands divided by strips of simulated carving reminiscent of the frames of Carolingian ivories. The evocation of sculptural forms in early medieval display scripts is hardly accidental. The epitaph of Pope Hadrian in St. Peter's in Rome, it's very hard to overlook when you come into the modern portico, it's way, way up above Moderna's uh, portico, almost at the top of the interior colonnade. So 99% of visitors just walk into the church and don't even know that it's there. Uh, this epitaph, like the inset epigraphic inscriptions from Corvai, confirms the self-conscious emulation of the gilt bronze letters known as literae incrustate or celestate employed in Roman epigraphy. In the Life and Miracles of St. Quentin, dated around 1100, the scribe, quill and inkhorn in hand, shows himself penning the dazzling epigraphic script. The left-hand side of the opening that prefaces the 12th century life and miracles of Saint-Amand 
captures the clarity of Roman epigraphic lettering, even as the opposite page engulfs it in a massive ornament reminiscent of early medieval carpet pages. As illusionistic modes of representation came to dominate manuscript illumination in the later Middle Ages, epigraphic display scripts did not disappear. Rather, they were returned to their original context as part of the fabric of architectural ornament. A late 15th century copy of the Laudes Bellicae of Alexander Cortesius, illuminated by the great Italian scribe and calligrapher Bartolomeo San Vito, opens with a triumphal arch that incorporates the titulus, initial for the incipit, and six lines of display script. In the same archaeological spirit, the continuation of the script is presented as a torn sheet of parchment pinned to the facade, rather like the banners announcing blockbuster shows at modern museums, and surrounded by the putti who cavort around the edges. Script participates in the production of pictorial as well as semantic significance. In the earliest extant instance of an eye initial with imbricated medallions illustrating the hexameron, the Mosin Lobus Bible, written in 1084, the scribe Gauteranus imposes a triune structure matching the seven roundels for the seven days of creation with the seven blocks of letters that spell the remainder of the in principio, then seven lines in alternating brown and red ink that continue creavit deum calum et teram. The combinations and contractions make the numerical structure possible. The pictorial use of script can extend from words to entire folios. In the giant Admont Bible, the opening of Deuteronomy, which shows Moses receiving the tablets of the law, echoes their structure by extending the frontispiece across the fold of the opening. The depiction of God writing the law, not with his finger, but with a stylus, enables the picture to participate in the authority of holy writ. A similar conceit informs the frontispiece to Deuteronomy in the Saint-Vast Bible. Outside the double-lobe frames that enclose the text, God hands down the law, whereas in the initial itself and in the lower spandrels, birds and serpents engage in combat. So in effect, in all of these illustrations of Deuteronomy, the book, the opening of the book, self-consciously imitates what they believe the tablets of the law to look like so that the book participates in the authority of that original moment of transition from oral uh, to uh, written. Even in the absence of illustration, scripts constitute systems of representation in their own right. Cistercian manuscripts of the 12th century offer a case in point. As if to compensate for the prohibition of figural ornament and lavish materials, Cistercian scribes develop display scripts that combine austerity of materials with a prolixity of form. In a Clairvaux copy of Rabanus Maurus, the incipit fills a single folio with six lines of ornate letters painted on plain parchment, without, however, permitting any predictable pattern. No less distinctive is the table of contents, and it's a very early example of a table of contents, uh, to the exemplar of the Cistercian liturgy of Citeaux, it's on your left, written at Clairvaux, when in the mid-1250s the Dominican liturgy was reformed, employing the Cistercian liturgy as a model, the Dominican scribes looked to the manuscript from, Cl for, from Clairvaux for more than simply a set of texts. They also adopted the form of the prefatory table, adding only a figural element, 
uh, the Annunciation above and the figures of Dominic and Peter Martyr uh, below. The prefatory tables to these liturgical compendia employ another distinctive disposition of script, whose function extends well beyond that of conveying information. Continuous inscriptions that run around all four sides of the page to form a frame, a feature that first appears with any regularity in Anglo-Saxon and Etonian codices, and that may be linked to the use of verses, most often hexameters, whose metrical properties could be accentuated by their geometric disposition on the page. Like many other ways of deploying script in medieval manuscripts, inscribed frames hamper rather than enhance legibility. To decipher the words, the reader must either crane their neck, walk around the book, or turn the book in their hands. In the Floreff Bible, it's a Mosin Bible of the mid-12th century, a very big book, the inscribed frame extends to encompass the entire opening. Based on Job, it reads, this image is given as a model of good behavior. That's referring to the allegorical diagrammatic image on the left, uh, based on the story of Job, a model of good behavior, and then referring to the image on the right, the Transfiguration and Last Supper, this image teaches the depths of divine mysteries. The words, like the images, explain the juxtaposition of Job's travails with the Transfiguration as an example of the mixed life, vita activa et contemplativa, to which the premonstratensian monks of Floreff aspired. So what you see here is a programmatic image that embodies the entire program of the Premonstratensian lifestyle, if one wants to put it in those terms. In an otherwise wide-ranging article that comprehends a vast variety of linguistic possibilities, the linguist Malcolm Hyman offers a generalization regarding glottographic writing that inadvertently reveals the potential of medieval materials to offer a fresh perspective. Seeking to define his subject, he states, in a superficial sense, it is a line left to right for English, right to left for Hebrew, top to bottom for Mongolian, boustrophedron in the case of several traditions. Only rarely does glottography transfigure itself completely into something like Apollinaire's calligram or the calligraphic rendition of Surah 105 of the Quran that takes the form of an elephant. Inscriptions, however, shape meaning in a variety of ways, many of which we are only just beginning to look at. Words adorn medieval objects of every conceivable kind, not only plates or patents, chalices, altars, paintings, vestments, robes, furniture, in short, all manner of secular and liturgical objects, but also, still more strikingly, monumental sculpture and painting. These inscriptions do not merely explain the objects on which they are inscribed, they lend them a voice. In public context, much of this writing was addressed to an illiterate public that would have been unable to comprehend it. Their incomprehension, however, would have hardly prevented them from being impressed by its very illegibility. The visual elaboration of inscriptions on early medieval documents were designed in part to lend authority to signs that were otherwise illegible to their often illiterate recipients. Moreover, Latin, especially Latin verse, with its variable word order, proved particularly accommodating to visual manipulation. 
The centering of significant words, place names, names of patrons, provides only the simplest example. Variation in script size provides another. The formal disposition of letters constituted an essential part of epigraphic expression. The disposition of letters was deeply informed by the diagrammatic tradition, in which inscriptions not only elaborated, but also in many instances provided the underlying architecture of expression. Other practices provided for the shaping of words into pictorial forms. Of these, micrography, especially in Hebrew manuscripts, is the best known. Micrographic texts are in turn closely related to current... Whoops. Excuse me. Better there than on my computer. Micrographic texts are in turn closely related to Carmina Figurata, of which Rabanus Maurus's De Laudibus Crucis is the most familiar example. In Byzantine cruciform lectionaries, the pericopes are often written in the form of a cross, both enhancing and emphasizing the fundamental unity of the text and linking the four Gospels to the salvific power of the tree of life. In all of these traditions, the forms assumed by lettering do not merely embroider meaning, they embody it. Hyman, the linguist to whom uh, 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 I referred previously, notes in passing that in Gulliver's travels, Swift imagines a Lilliputian form of writing that follows the diagonals of pages. Uh, He adds, it's worth noting that no such system is actually known. What then one might ask of geometrical Carmina Consolata or letter labyrinths that provide what might be called a medieval form of hypertext linking various terms and ways of reading? From a modern perspective, these images of writing are perverse or merely clever, but to those who created them, they were more than a means of showing off. They both enhanced and revealed meaning rather than obscuring it. This richly illuminated copy of Isidore's Etymologies opens with a poem in praise of the Virgin Mary, arranged according to a grid bisected by intersecting diagonals, in which the larger letters placed at the terminals and crossings represent both the first and last letters of the words that intersect at that point, permitting the poem to be read in several directions simultaneously. In addition to undercutting the linearity commonly associated with speech and its written representation, the pattern provides for an open web of linked associations more often identified with visual representation, or in the modern age, with hypertext. The Book of Kells provides amongst the most striking examples of the symbolic use of diagonal writing. When the text reaches Matthew 27, it's the passage referring to the crucifixion, the script itself, in deference to Christ's name, adopts the form of a cross. Just a few more pages and I'll be done. In Carmina Figurata, script itself assumes representational form. Script could also be given a representational character by being inscribed on images of books within books, or pictures for that matter. Although various types of medieval illumination, for example, author portraits and dedication images, offer innumerable examples of such images, which provide an implicit and sometimes explicit commentary on the status and function of the written word in the Middle Ages, 
They have only recently been systematically investigated as a source for recovering medieval attitudes towards writing as a craft. In the Abdinghofen Gospels, produced in Cologne in the mid-11th century, the mission of the apostles is represented by an imposing figure of Christ who holds an open gospel in his right hand, an unfurled scroll in his left. The scroll contrasts pointedly with the grand sweep of the overall image, which expands to fill the opening, embracing the apostles on the facing recto, who gesture excitedly in response to Christ's preaching. The gospel passage is John 10, 9, I am the gate, I am the door, ego sum ostium. The open book is inscribed, is identified with the open door of heaven that is Christ himself. The passage on the scroll is a paraphrase of Christ's injunction to the apostles that they go out into the world to preach the word of God. Whereas the codex is identified with Christ as logos, the scroll, in keeping with its customary association with oral recitation, is associated with oral performance, specifically the preaching mission of the apostles. In returning to oral recitation, we have come full circle So let me conclude with a few brief remarks on the vernacular, really all too brief. The techniques traced in this talk were all developed for the presentation and elaboration of sacred texts. It should be recalled, however, that at the time they began to develop, along with the Codex itself, Latin remained a vernacular language. Over the course of the Middle Ages, as the modern vernaculars began to emerge, and then quite literally to be codified, The codices took on many of the trappings of religious books that would endow them with similar claims to authority. Illumination was one of the most important because of one of the most prestigious of such means. The opening to a magnificent, if damaged, copy of Brunetto Latini's 13th century uh, book of treasure, Le Livre du Trésor, provides a good example It confronts the reader with a panoply of decorative devices drawn from the repertory of sacred illumination, all of which were designed to invest the didactic text with comparable dignity. These include the historiated initial C, which as in a glossed book is doubled by a second smaller C that actually opens the text. Think back to the Psalter from Marcien that we saw before, the Beatus initial. In the larger initial, the author is shown seated on a cathedra, writing his book in a large display capitals beneath a canopied structure more evocative of a palace than a church. The setting of the display script extending to the right overlaps the opening rubric with a chiastic quadrant of red and blue squares surrounding gold and silver letters placed against a thick layer of burnished gold incised with a diaper pattern. Filling the margins is a florid carpet of fine filigree reminiscent of the decoration of luster ware in which is embedded a now fragmentary framing inscription that reprises much of the same information. All of these decorative features represent marked departures from the range of illumination customarily found in manuscripts containing vernacular texts, and in and of themselves represent a set of claims regarding the truth content of the book. Techniques originally developed to heighten the written word and remind the reader of its divine origins are now deployed to lend dignity to vulgar literature. Words take the place of the word. Still more remarkable is its implicit divinization. Uh, In its explicit divinization of the author is a copy of Dante's Divine Comedy 
written and illuminated in Bologna in the second half of the 14th century. It's the Codex Altenensis, so named because it's now in a gymnasium in Hamburg, but it comes from Bologna. On the opening verso of the first opening, six lines of large letters in burnished gold filled with bright red filigree fill the celestial blue background with a proclamation of the work's sublimity. L'alta commedia del sommo poeta Dante, the sublime comedy of the most sublime of all poets. That's a pretty good blurb. Dante's work is identified with revelation through the placement of the personification of Ecclesia in the frame at top center, a crowned woman who, in addition to holding a fiery seraph in her right hand and a closed book, presumably a gospel, is identified by the bust of Christ holding an open book in the medallion emblazoned on her chest. On the facing folio, eight additional roundels contain figures of the prophets, sibyls, and venerated authors. And in the historiated initial that opens the text proper, we see the poet himself in a posture of uh, meditation or sleep, uh, dreaming his vision. The manuscript returns us to where we began, the transition from the charismatic voice of the prophet, transmitted by an anonymous scribe or mouthpiece, to the charisma of the author and artist who in a manuscript such as this vie with one another for the attention and admiration of the reader. We are at the threshold of another modern world in which artistry will eventually stand as an end in itself. What, Polonius asks Hamlet, does he read? Words, 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 the prince replies. In Hamlet's world, Words seem in danger of losing their relationship to reality. The Middle Ages, however, should not be used as a foil for modernity. Medieval images, including medieval representations of words, seek to create effects of presence, yet at the same time insist on their character as signs. By the same score, realistic modes of representation retain their semantic character. A Reformation altarpiece that enshrines the Ten Commandments aims to be literal, but nonetheless lends the words vivid, commanding presence by virtue of their size, prominence, shape, and placement. Our world may be less numinous than it was in the Middle Ages, but even when the image is reduced to nothing but words, its iconic immediacy persists. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. So, um, Professor Hamburger has generously uh, agreed to take questions. Uh, we have a very broad uh, set of disciplinary and chronological perspectives. Um, so, please launch and volley. Yeah, great. Many people would have been illiterate, but some of them were made to be read. 
Well, in general, I think we can say that it's part of the point. Obviously, there'll be cases where incomprehension wasn't intended uh, and yet was produced. Uh, but uh, we all know that from our own experience. Uh, but on the whole, I think that... Uh, take, for example, cases in which the text would have been known by heart. Uh, so that the, the letters on the page really serve uh, much like cues for a musician who essentially knows the piece of music he's playing by heart but has the music there just as a set of, of, of cues to reinforce uh, his or her memory. Uh, and uh, the words, in a sense, are taken as a part of depo- departure. The analogy is not accidental because, in, in many re- ways, monastic reading was much closer to chanting or singing than it is to modern ways of reading. M- uh, monks tended to read out loud, silent reading, uh, while not perhaps uh, quite as modern as Paul Singer has argued, uh, is a development that takes place over the course of the Middle Ages. Uh, and so if you had gone into, into a monastic library, you would have heard people uh, reading. Monks were known as mumblers. Uh, it was thought that only by mouthing the words, by forming the words, could you really uh, take them uh, in. Uh, and, for example, if you look at Cistercian manuscripts of the 12th century, you see systems of punctuation that look very much and are in part derived from neumes, early musical notation, that don't indicate actual pitch, but patterns of intonation. So that uh, even something as simple that, a visual indication of punctuation, is designed to accentuate and shape and structure your experience uh, of the text, spacing between letters, Uh, The kinds of things to which you're referring uh, are perhaps less clarifying, they're more mystifying, and you really can think, say, of a carpet page in an insular manuscript as a a visual veil that has to be pulled back from the text. Karl Nordenfolk once very memorably compared insular carpet pages to a cloud of incense that covers uh, the text. There really is supposed to be something, if not suffocating, overwhelming about the experience uh, of these books, which were often treated as relics, as magical objects. We know that the Book of Duro, well into the modern period, was used by a farmer who dipped it into the well from which his cattle drank because he thought that it had magical powers that would prevent his cows from getting sick. Uh, So I think that is in part the spirit in which one has to think of these uh, books, that Uh, It all depends what you mean by understanding. There's literal understanding, and then there's a deeper understanding. And then, from the point of view of the people who made these books, there's an understanding that surpasseth all understanding. And and to a certain extent, what the decoration in these books is trying to do is use visual media to hint at something that ultimately uh, escapes all expression. Jeffrey Avil, Discipline History. Um, Jeffrey, I wanted to ask, I mentioned before the talk that uh, some of the people in the audience had read this short article by the medievalist Michael Clanchy Mm -hmm. in which he talks about the coming of the printing press and points out exactly the points that you so copiously illustrated here, that medieval manuscripts have ways of capturing 
the sacred in particular that in Clanchy's view are not present in earliest or presumably subsequent uh, printed texts. I wanted to ask if you agree with that rupture, that the story that you're tracing really starts to come to an end. I mean, not a, very few of your examples went past 1500. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, if you do agree with that chronology and that rupture, do you think it is driven by the new technology that desacralizes this form of art? Do you think there are other factors involved? Um, I'm asking you a historian's periodization question. In some right, ways. right. Yeah. And, and I'll answer it in that spirit. Uh, very hard question to answer. Printing obviously had a profound impact. And as you know better than I do, it's been held responsible for all sorts of things. The, the Reformation, uh, modernity. Uh, and yet I think it is worth pointing out, this is somewhat independent of Clanchy's argument, that, uh, and this is very much a medievalist claim, that in many respects the most profound changes in the history of the book come not in the 15th century, but in the 12th century. So if we think of all of the features that define the book, and I'm talking about the codex at technology, which is now in the process of disappearing, so we can see in fresh ways that it's actually much more contingent than we ever imagined. <clears throat> but that, I think, makes it a very interesting moment in history to be studying the history of the book. All sorts of things, table of contents, I showed an example, uh, glosses, footnotes, um, uh, lamata, um, uh, punctuation, indices, uh, alphabetization, all of these ways of accessing text uh, that we take, pagination, that we take so much for granted, were invented... Um, in part, not entirely in the context of the universities in the 12th and early 13th century, as there was a profound shift from reading a small corpus of texts to producing vast quantities of commentaries on texts and commentaries on commentaries, and you get an explosion of information, and in part, in order to master that, uh, you get, on the one hand, new techniques for producing standardized text, the Pacia system in Paris, so that everyone is literally on the same page, uh, and um, new ways of, of the first union catalogs are produced by the mendicant orders in the 13th and 14th century. The Dominicans had a union catalog of manuscripts in their libraries in the 14th century, so that if you wanted to borrow a book from another Dominican convent anywhere in the British Isles, you could. Uh, so I think in many respects in terms of the history, not only of the book, but perhaps more interestingly, the history of reading. Uh, the, the 12th century marks the most profound revolution, and, and many of the features that are then emulated in early printed books uh, can be traced back to that time. It has to be said, of course, that printing, just through the sheer numbers, uh, affects a transformation of a different kind. It's been estimated that more books were produced in the second half of the 15th century than had produced in all of previous history. I mean, that really is a staggering statistic. Uh, a large monastic library, in the, even in the early 15th century, for example, the library of St. Uh, Katharinenthal, a female Dominican convent in Nuremberg, 
had about 600 books, and that was considered a huge library. One of those books actually survives. It's in the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum right across the river. Uh, and uh, you know, very, very quickly, 600 books became not such an impressive uh, figure. Very rapidly, there were individuals who owned that many books as opposed to institutions. So I think... Uh, to that extent, I would agree with Clancy, also with the suggestion that uh, printing, in a way, desacralizes uh, the text. But that process, I, when I talk about the shift from the charisma of, of the author uh, uh, in the 12th century, that the, the text losing its aura, that's part, I think, of the same process. The mass production of texts begins in the, in the late 12th century as well. So yes, I would. I, on the whole, I would agree with with, with, with Clancy. But that said, I I wouldn't underestimate the profound impact of, of printing, and I wouldn't necessarily. Medievalists can all too often be nostalgic about what is lost, uh, and so historians too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is this on. Uh, this may, uh, David Thorburn, literature. This may, uh, may be just an extension of what you've just been discussing. In your comments, you talked about a change that, as the later Middle Ages, uh, in the in the later Middle Ages, I think I got this right, that things became even more decorative and less engaged with script. And I w wondered if you would elaborate on that a little more and, and discuss some of the reasons. I think you were actually discussing what I anticipated mm -hmm. some of the reasons now, but I'd like to hear more about it. Well, I'm not sure I would say more or less of anything. I think it just, it's different. Uh, there are different kinds of script, uh, and uh, there, I mean, that's what keeps paleographers in business because handwriting has a history. Uh, so there are different kinds of script, and the relationship between text and image changes so, I mean, this is a, a gross generalization, painting with a very broad brush, but you could say that whereas in the earlier Middle Ages, text and image are very difficult to sort out from one another, hence my title, text, uh, script as image. In the later Middle Ages, beginning with the production of Gothic books in the late 12th century, you see a teasing out of, of script and, and image. So, for example, the, the appearance of marginalia, uh, it's a phenomenon in French and Flemish books of the 13th century, all of that fantastic zoomorphic imagery that crowds initials in Romanesque manuscripts is essentially forced out into the margins. Uh, there's no room for it anymore at the center of the page, which becomes much closer to what we think of as modern justification. Uh, that's another one of these inventions, which essentially goes back to the late 12th and 13th century. And it's so strict, this separation of the text block from any other kind of space that's left free for decoration, that you can in fact date French and English manuscripts by whether or not they're written above top line. The, the top line in a manuscript, uh, is that a frame, or is it the support for the first line of script? In other words, does the, does this, the first line of script uh, transgress the inscribed frame of the justification? And pretty much smack around 1200, the paleographer Neil Kerr was the first to observe this. Uh, scribes systematically start writing below top line, and it's an amazingly useful device for dating books. So there is a tendency towards greater clarity. Would you call that a in No, 
No, I'm, I'm enough of an historicist to say simply that it's different. I don't want to place value on... Uh, it, it's a diminution of something, but, it's, it, but, but uh, that in turn makes possible the fantastic proliferation of marginalia with all of its wonderful ribald imagery and narrative life and animation that one doesn't find to nearly the same extent in earlier manuscripts. It, it liberates other possibilities. I wouldn't, even, I wouldn't even say that. I mean, for example, if uh, um, you're not going to get me to say the words more or less. Uh, um, um, no, you won't succeed. Um, again, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an historian and an historicist, and uh, I, I think in some ways I have to be because the study and appreciation of medieval art were really only made possible by historicism in the modern period. I mean, why is it that we've come to appreciate modern uh, medieval art as we do? It's because we no longer hold classical art and classical aesthetics to be normative. It used to be thought that medieval art was barbaric by comparison to the classical. And um, uh, it's only because of an historicist perspective. Uh, You know, for example, if you go to the gardens of Stowe in England, and you walk around the gardens there, you see a mini pantheon, and you see a mini Greek temple, and you see a hermit's cottage, and you see it's a little bit like Disneyland or Las Vegas, uh, to make a somewhat risque comparison. But that is, in a sense, that is in a nutshell, this historicist perspective that allows you to appreciate all of these different things simultaneously, and that is essentially our modern perspective today. So I'm not going to say that it's a diminution or an improvement. I'm I'm not subscribing to a philosophy of progress, but I'm also not subscribing to a kind of Spengler-like decline and fall. Yes. Right, but in terms of value, okay. Some things are gained, some things are lost. I'm just not going to place a value judgment on it. So if you look at this wonderful manuscript in Wolfenbüttel written by Bartolomeo San Vito, uh, it's, um, uh, it's, it's obviously very different from a 12th century manuscript in which everything is on the surface of the page, uh, and yet it's exploiting other possibilities. So I don't think we really disagree. Hi, I'm Stephanie Frampton, also from Literature, and thank you so much for the talk, and thank you for going back to this wonderful mm. image. Um, to connect this with the last, your, your finis, your last mm-hmm. image, which was kind of non-paleographic. Was yeah, more epigraphic. Epigraphic, <laughs> right, so this like Roman pastiche uh, mm-hmm. of a medieval period. It's the porch of Santa Maria in Trastevere. Right, yeah, yes. which is like... The date of that is in your period, probably. Right? It's um, what? Um, thir- uh, it's it's thirteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth century. It's yeah. cumulative. Um, right. So that is doing something with Roman epigraphic material and Roman epigraphic typefaces, mm-hmm. right? But this is also kind of playing with in a very 
uh, high, high, almost high Renaissance way, right? We, oh, very, very high Renaissance. Which, this isn't, is which isn't possible in the medieval stuff, but you did kind of touch on the use of Roman scripts, epigraphic scripts yeah. in the medieval manuscripts, and I just kind of wanted to ask yeah. a paleographer's question that I've always wanted to mm -hmm. ask an art historian, which is, uh -oh. what's okay. going on there? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, um, I can refer you to a wonderful book, which I think has been much neglected, uh, perhaps you know it, by Stanley Morrison called The Politics of Script. And I, it was written about 50 years ago. And he, in effect, analyzes in almost excruciating detail the uh, development, loss, and recovery of various modes of Roman writing, focusing on things like Carolingian minuscule and all of its varieties, epigraphic display scripts, and he's arguing, perhaps in a somewhat overdetermined way, that every subtle variation in script is loaded with political significance in terms of how the relationship with antiquity and, and ancient exemplars is uh, framed. Uh, I think it's a very important book uh, because it represents a very early and precocious attempt to, uh, by a paleographer to look beyond description to, to cultural context. Uh, you know, it, it means something when you attempt to emulate a Roman epigraphic script. So, for example, it means something when at Corvai, let's see if I can go back to that example, uh, they're not using porphyry because they didn't have porphyry, but they're using the local purplish sandstone. It doesn't really look purple here. And they're placing into it gilt bronze letters. They've gone to an enormous amount of trouble to evoke the kinds of inscriptions that they would have seen still on early Christian uh, buildings. Uh, so a manuscript like San Vito's is not the first. The, the epigraph of Hadrian at the Vatican is another very eloquent example. There's a long tradition of... Um, of archaeological revival at various points in the Middle Ages. But that shouldn't come as a surprise in the light of, you know, if you think of Panofsky's Renaissance and Renaissances. Their, their script is yet another way of declaring cultural affinity. Oh, absolutely. I mean, stone implies... Permanence, it implies public space. To use an epigraphic script is to evoke a public space. Who's written about this very eloquently is the Italian scholar Armando Petrucci. Uh, epigraphic scripts as a way of engaging implicitly or explicitly in a kind of political discourse. To use a monumental epigraphic script, whether on a building or in a representation of a building, is to be making certain claims about public space because it's addressed to a public audience in that kind of way. Kind of going back to one of the questions, the answer that you gave to the... Sorry, I'm Aisha. I'm from... Just for recording, I think. Not yeah. <laughs> I'm Aisha. I'm in CMS. Um, the Sorry, what does that an acronym stand for? Comparative Media Studies. Okay. Um, one of your <laughs> Okay. 
<laughs> so when you were answering the first question, you mentioned kind of the like magical properties of these texts. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about um, the talismanic relationship that a lot of people had to manuscripts. So I mean, I'm mm -hmm. talking about like Ethiopic manuscripts from the 15th and 16th century. They were often like little psalters that people mm -hmm. just keep in their pocket. Exactly, yes. And um, that they didn't necessarily read them. So I just like the relationship of image to talisman. Right. To no, that's true. You don't have to read a text for it to be effective. You can just wear it on your body uh, as a kind of ta talisman or uh, amulet. And uh, we know that, you know, whether it's a love charm or little uh, monograms, people still, if, if in perhaps diminished form, attach all kinds of powers or charm to uh, various combinations of uh, letters. I mean, people still carve their names onto trees, and, and, and uh, graffiti could also probably, or certain kinds of tattooing could be incorporated into, into this perspective. Uh, and so there's always been a close association between magic and letters, and it comes back to the question about legibility. Magic, by definition, is a kind of hocus-pocus, and as you probably know, hocus-pocus comes from hocus danum corpus meum, which no one could understand, so they thought it was hocus-pocus. Uh, and, and, um, uh, or those writing those letters on the floor of a church, Greek and Roman alphabets. Uh, uh, there are many, or, or the, if, you, if you tie letters together in the form of a knot, knots were often uh, thought to have various protective or magic powers. So you get letters... Uh, bent into rebus-like forms or monograms that look like knots. The possibilities are, are endless. I guess uh, one way of putting it would be just to say that letters are far too an important a means of communication to be limited to the more literal, mundane, everyday uses to which we, in, in our restricted imaginations, tend to confine them. Um, one more question. Or none. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll ask one. <laughs> so I, I wanted to know what, I mean, you're speaking to an audience of um, radically disparate uh, periods as well as, as um, disciplines. And I sort of wondered what your kind of final thoughts might be on how a broad cross-section of scholars and thinkers might engage with the sort of fullness of the wonderful strangeness um, that we've seen on display this afternoon. I mean, how do those of us who aren't art historians um, acknowledge beyond simply appreciating? Well, I think that's obvious. Everyone should become a medievalist. <laughs> do I have to say anything else? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, your answer is over, but um, others might like you to Well, continue. no, I think that um, um, I, I, I tried to hint at an answer earlier in that you know, I would say, in a more serious vein, I may be a medievalist, but I live in modernity, and I think that uh, no matter how nostalgic it might be for the Middle Ages, and I'm not, uh, not in the least, um, uh, I think that one has to think in terms, one, one necessarily uh, is viewing the Middle Ages from a modern perspective. Uh, and so, given the inevitability of doing that, uh, it behooves one to be self-conscious about the perspective that you bring to the subject. And so uh, I think one has to, and, and the fact that we're living in the midst of a media revolution right now, 
uh, in which the codex, which has formed a, 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 a seemingly natural part of the cultural uh, environment for the better part of two millennia, is now going the way of all flesh. Uh, there are some libraries in this country which have declared that they will no longer purchase books. Uh, I mean, it's astonishing to me, but one reads about that uh, on one's iPad or on... <laughs> um, it's, um, I think it makes it a very opportune moment to think about the relationship between modern media and medieval media. We are returning to an age in which various types of performance and participation and hypertext uh, are once again uh, becoming part of our own uh, routines. Uh, I mean, think of something as simple as scrolling. Scrolling, which disappeared with the, the, the codex, except in very rare circumstances, a necrology or an exalted role or a passion play, uh, context very closely linked to liturgical or oral recitation, scrolling has now become common parlance. We all scroll on our computer screens. So in some ways, our moving forward is in fact the moving back to past practices. And I think we can inform our understanding of the changes that we're experiencing if we're aware uh, of the recursive nature of change. That change is not always progress. Sometimes it's also, this perhaps comes back to your question about loss and, and, and gain, that, that things that are characterized as progress also involve certain kinds of loss or return. Now, I, I have this debate with some of my colleagues who are uh, in the digital humanities, and I sit, I'm on the digital humanities committee uh, at Harvard. Uh, little do they know that sometimes I just want to pull the plug. <laughs> but uh, without being a Luddite, uh, but um, uh, I, 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 re I, I revel in the possibilities of the digital humanities, but I'm also very concerned about things that will be lost. Uh, the ability to concentrate, for one, uh, and, and so per perhaps I should just leave it leave it there. I I, I think that. Uh, I, I think that we can better, I mean, as an historian, I'm professionally committed to the notion that we better understand ourselves if we understand the past, but at the same time, I recognize that we can only understand the past from the perspective of the present. Well, fortunately, um, we have refreshments waiting um, on a floor that, uh, whose number I am not aware of, but I gather others are the third. Great, thanks. Um, so uh, please join me in thanking our speaker, um, Jeffrey Hamburger. Thank you very much. Thanks. <laughs> and please follow us down to the